Welcome to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century on Blue Ridge Public Radio. I'm Dr. Marsha Mountshoot. And I'm Coach John Shoot. John's coached at the highest levels of the game of football for 26 years. And Marsha is an author, theologian, and minister. And we're glad you've joined us to go deep into some of the most pressing issues of our time. On Going Deep, we go beyond the sound bites and highlight reels. Welcome to Going Deep. On this episode, we're going to visit with the co-editors and founders of the Intercollegiate, Daniel Libet up in Chicago and Luke Cyphers in Plattsburgh, New York. Um, the Intercollegiate is a pretty interesting uh, news source. Uh, they do have a newsletter, The Extra Point, which is fantastic. They do have podcasts that certainly go deep. But the thing that I like most about the intercollegiate is the long-form journalism. In a day and age of uh, 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 Twitter feeds where a paragraph, people get bored after just reading a paragraph, these guys really go deep in a long form of journalism. And... Uh, what a pleasure to have uh, Daniel and uh, Luke with us here now. Daniel, could you say hello to everybody <laughs> on Going Deep? Well, it's nice to be with you guys. I appreciate the invitation. Yeah, and Luke from Plattsburgh, New York. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Uh, really looking forward to this. Thanks. I'm interested in how you two guys uh, kind of connected. Because, Luke, you came into, I don't know, the sports world sports journalism uh, kind of, I don't know, more in a more common way. Could you talk about your journey in journalism towards the intercollegiate and then how you connected with Dan and then his story as well is quite interesting. Yeah, I'd be glad to. I mean, I think the proper word, I guess, for my career would be traditional, which means I'm old. And uh, in, in that sense, I uh, grew up in Western Colorado in, um, you know, played high school sports. My two of my uh, brothers were division one athletes in football and uh, I was not very good, but I went to the University of Colorado uh, and graduated from there, then got a journalism degree masters at, uh, at Columbia and uh, have always kind of had a tie to sports in whatever journalism job I've done. Um, most of my career was spent at either the New York Daily News, where I was for 10 years, uh, kind of two different uh, stints and two different stints at ESPN Magazine for another basically 10 years, um, where I covered everything from, uh, you know, pretty much all the major sports but did a lot of uh, kind of investigative reporting and deeper enterprise reporting on things like sexual abuse or uh, the NCAA's amateurism policies and things like that. Um, since then, I've been uh, a uh, off and on journalism instructor at SUNY Plattsburgh in, in uh, upstate New York um, and was a full professor or a, actually associate professor there for uh, four years. Um, and then got uh, out of that and uh, kind of busted myself back down to an adjunct so I could do more freelance writing and have done some long form stuff for uh, SB Nation and Bleacher Report and, and uh, Deadspin for a few years. So 
in that realm is where Daniel and I uh, connected. He reached out to me about a prior project he was working on that ended up not really going anywhere. Um, but then when I saw he was uh, starting the intercollegiate, probably on somebody's Twitter feed, I reached out to him and say, said, hey, do you need some help? And he said, yes. Well, before we get into Daniel, I got to know, what years were you at the University of Colorado? I was there from 1982 and graduated a little bit late in 1987. So Coach Mack, Bill McCartney. You could do some long-form German <laughs> journalism on the Promise Keepers right there. Uh, yeah, there's Exactly, a lot of yeah. My, as a graduate assistant, I worked for Jerry DiNardo at Vanderbilt, where I got my master's. And I'm going to tell you, he and Chris Symington and Rick George, who's now back there right now, mm -hmm. those guys will never run for political office without me <laughs> uh, uh, okaying it. I can tell you that. I was on the college paper there, and, uh, you know, uh, Chris Symington has come a long way. I'll put it that way. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Ha, ha, I don't know. Has he, though? Has he, though? There's a question mark there. Daniel, tell us your story because, uh, well, you kind of come at it from a different way. And of all places, uh, New Mexico is involved in this. And I also got some Coach Davey stories if you need them. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, I've, I've written a few myself. Yeah. So I, I was born and raised in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I grew up a fan of the hometown New Mexico Lobos. Um, I went off to college, though, not at New Mexico. I went to Wisconsin, um, but was such a fan of New Mexico at the time that I almost disliked Wisconsin athletics. I just found it annoying because it was not my team, even though I was surrounded by it when I was in Madison. Um, and then after I graduated, I, I really went into political reporting. I, you know, a lot of men who get into journalism get in through the door of sports reporting. And so when I was a college student and even earlier, I wrote occasionally about college sports or sports in general. But my, the early part of my, my working career was covering politics. And so I lived in Washington, D.C. for three years. I was an early reporter at Politico not so long after it got started. Um, for reasons of just where I wanted to end up, I, I ended up quitting my job there to move to Chicago. It was just, I had a family ties to Chicago and I wanted to end up here, uh, but continued to cover politics almost all the way through the 2016 presidential election. And to the day or day after that, I... I figured that I was now so far removed from the political reporting story. I was in Chicago. If, you weren't, if you're not in New York or D.C., the current administration is not something that you really have an ability to cover for the most part. And I was getting rather peripheral to the story. And so I, I, had, I had an interest that was sort of like an academic interest in the way college sports is covered and a kind of contempt for the way that college sports is traditionally covered. And so I, without having anything else to do, thought, you know what, why don't I just try to run a little experiment here? And I was gonna do this for a month or two. I wanted to set up a blog and I just wanted to kind of investigate an athletic department, just any athletic department, as if I was throwing a dart up against the map of college sports and randomly picking one. Because it was, it was based on my idea that a lot of the scandals, such as they had been reported, were not about bad actors or outliers. A lot of it was about the system. 
that this is a system that just breeds hypocrisy and problems and corruption. Um, and I was interested in not finding or discovering the next craziest form of it, the next Jerry Sandusky scandal version of it, but just the kind of normal day-to-day garden variety problems of, of you know, college sports as they've come to operate. And so I initially was going to seize upon my alma mater, Wisconsin, um, but ultimately decided to focus on New Mexico because I was just more familiar with the proper nouns. I knew who the coaches were. Um, I knew what, what more or less how the teams performed. And just so I set up this blog and I started filing a bunch of public records requests, um, mainly for people's emails because I knew nothing about the athletic department. I had no sourcing. This is not even a subject though I had written from time to time. It's never a subject I'd actually covered college sports. And so um, what was going to be a one or two month excursion before I got back to real work ended up sort of defining the last four years of my life. I did two years of just relentlessly investigating the University of New Mexico, uncovering a bunch of things, uh, much to their delight. And uh, then after almost two years to the day, I figured this was enough of just New Mexico and I should probably have a a grander ambition than just beating that dead horse. And so I, um, I launched the intercollegiate. I had this idea that I was going to apply the practices and some of the knowledge I had and particularly the public records reporting that I was doing and just do it on a larger scale or at least have a, uh, have a broader focus. And as Luke mentioned, we, uh, there was a moment in the course of my New Mexico work where I had been uh, reached out to by this upstart kind of bizarre journalism platform that was going to be funded by cryptocurrency. And so I had already kind of plotted out how I might try to do a national version of what I was doing. That never took root um, ultimately for me. But then, you know, sort of on my own, I figured, let me just try to do this. And, and Luke was a very good person to partner with. Um, and we both have a similar disposition towards the, the, the subject that we're covering. We're, we're cynics and scrutinizers and... Um, I think to the extent that I once was a fan, that's been somewhat sucked out of me. I'm, I would consider myself more an interested party, you know, an interested observer of college sports. Me too. So, yeah, yeah. So we really <laughs> resonate with that. at it from the opposite direction though we came at it from within the world of sports and we too became interested as too mild a term but um disillusion maybe well we we became interested in in a a deeper story about what really happens in sports and it was from our firsthand experiences in sports and i wonder I know John has a lot of, of questions around particular cases, but I wonder before we leave this broader thing, this broader kind of spirit of what brought you into this, if you could say a little bit, both of you, about what's at stake in a kind of more, um, a more rigorous analysis given to the industry of sport. 
Um, you know, I come at that from the perspective of an ethicist and a theologian who happened to be married to a football coach mm. and also a feminist that um, problematized quite a bit in that, the football world for me. That's pretty common. <laughs> the, the, the first, I, I was 25 years old coaching for the Carolina Panthers in my first year. And I came home and Marcia said, so I got thrown out of the wives Bible study today. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I guess for, for me, there are issues of justice and, um, and equity. And, you know, those are the things that kind of drive me in terms of in our relationships with players um, and certainly issues around race. And I wonder, like, you know, you could pick any institutional realm in our culture and it could benefit from a more rigorous analysis why what's at stake for you both in doing that with sports well i'll i'll go first um i think yeah i i, I my interest in, in diving deeply into sports is really a, a testament to what you just said that there are a lot of domains of inquiry that just go unscrutinized in our culture i think what's particularly interesting about sports and then additionally interesting about college sports is there's just so much momentum to not wanting to know the dirty details i mean we're all fans collectively i mean this is a, just a country of college sport fans in one form or another we have you know, many of us have graduated or gone to a university. Many of us have gone to a university that has college sports or where that's a big component of it. And our identification with our whole educational background is often through our ties to the college sports program. Um, and for that reason, and a bunch of others that we can, I'm sure we'll talk about, there's just hasn't been a lot of kind of cultural reckoning with what this thing is and why has it come to exist and does it live up to its own credos and claims? And that's what made it very interesting for me. There's something as a journalist, from my perspective, that makes challenging a norm that nobody else or few other people want to challenge very interesting. And, and certainly it seems worthwhile, but it also seems interesting to do it where you're kind of standing outside of the mainstream here. And it is, I mean, th though there has been advocates and participants and journalists and academics who from time to time have really just hiked their eyebrow at the whole thing. That's not most of the people who follow college sports or talk about college sports. For the most part, it's all more or less affirmed in the popular discourse. This is a good thing. This makes sense the way we're doing it and where we see problems or scandals. That's just, again, kind of like that's a perversion of what it really is about these days. Yeah. And it just seemed like at a certain point when we keep seeing the same kinds of scandals and the same kinds of issues, does anybody want to connect some dots here? And from a journalistic standpoint, how do you tell stories that show that this is not just about bad apples or outliers? I mean, how do you demonstrate or explore whether or not there's something really deeper here that needs to be reconciled? And so, you know, I, I have limited bandwidth. I'm one person, at least I was when I was in New Mexico. And even now we're a very small crew. 
Um, and so, you know, my, my charge was how do you find ways of deconstructing this that will be meaningful beyond just the specific story, which again, is a, is a challenge of journalism anywhere. You know, we can all tell interesting stories, but at a certain point, are they meaningful beyond just the specific anecdote or the specific narrative that we've, that we've disclosed? Thank you. That, I call that dynamic that you're trying to chip away at is institutional idolatry. <laughs> it, makes it makes it hard for people to see the bad stuff. What about you, Luke? What is your, what's at stake for you? Well, I came up uh, kind of a true believer in the power of sports to do some good things. Um, as a kid growing up in the 70s, you know, I was kind of um, steeped in a lot of the um, mythology of sports bringing people together, and especially uh, in the racial sphere. You know, like my idols growing up were Gail Sayers and uh, Jesse Owens came and spoke uh, to my hometown when I was probably nine years old or something. And um, I saw through my brother's careers, they both got one football scholarships and ended up pretty good people uh, still. And uh, that, you know, there was a lot of good that could come from sports, but I also was an avid Sports Illustrated reader. And at that time, that was one of their golden eras. Uh, they were doing the hard stories and connecting sports and society and not always perfectly well, but they were asking questions and sometimes really um, knocking it out of the park, you know, and I remember John Underwood's college football uh, coverage during the 70s and early 80s was very uh, in-depth and talked about the corruption inherent in a lot of big-time college sports. Um, and so as I uh, finally decided after uh, college to become a journalist, I, I thought sports was a good fit for me because it was a great place to tell stories about important societal issues to an audience that might not otherwise be uh, interested enough in them, you know, to hear it. Um, you could really reach people with sports stories on things like race and yeah. gender and socioeconomic problems and poverty. And, and you could, you know, peel back some layers through sports stories and through sports writing, I always found, um, in ways that maybe you know, regular uh, newspaper magazine feature writer couldn't. And I think I was able to pull that off for a long time. And I was lucky enough to, when I was at Columbia, have Sandy Padway, who was a longtime Sports Illustrated investigations editor, teach my sports course there. Mm -hmm. um, and I learned a lot from him. And then I was able to get my first job in sports at a major paper covering high schools for the New York Daily News right at the time where high school sports was really peaking. It was the Stefan Marbury, Felipe Lopez time. Jamal Mashburn was there. It was the height of the sneaker wars. I talked to Sonny Vaccaro. Um, and I really, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, he's, every, he's America's guest, I think. <laughs> Sonny's great. Uh, but so that was just kind of uh, very, at the time, uh, a great career move. There was a demand for it. Um, and then when ESPN, the magazine came along, you know, they wanted my services and uh, I was able to do a lot of that work for them. But I, I will say um, the closer we got to the, the TV part on ESPN, you know, the harder it was 
to, uh, you know, to take your shots. And I was really lucky uh, again at the daily news to work with Terry Thompson, uh, who's the, the, uh, first the investigations editor there in sports and then the, the executive sports editor who is just a real pioneer in muckraking in sports journalism, uh, for the last you know, 30 years. Um, and so I've always kind of believed you could actually reform things. I have to say in the last four or five years, <laughs> that's been harder and harder to, uh, to abide by and, and reform things through the media. And I think the reason I'm saying that is because the media's changed a lot in the last 10 years. I mean, the death of newspapers is a real thing. There is not the quote unquote legit journalism, which had many, many flaws. I'm not going to say it was a golden age, but I do think what's happened to a lot of sports reporting in the last 10 years is not really reporting. It's just kind of fan pages under the guise of reporting. And I think the, uh, you know, eruption of, of social media has also hardened fans uh, ideas and perceptions to the point where they don't want to hear anything negative about somebody that's on their team, um, which there's always been a, an element of that, but I think it's, it's gotten, it's become much, much tougher not to crack. They don't want to hear anything negative about people on their team that they like or that are playing well. <laughs> if they're not playing well, they want to hear negative stuff. Get, get them out of there. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Well, yeah. well it, it, it's interesting to me, too, Luke, what you said, because Sports Illustrated, I absolutely grew up on as well. I mean, I couldn't wait to get that issue every week. And it really did. Uh, it's not an understatement. To say, I mean, Sports Illustrated inspired me. I mean, it loved me into loving sports. I mean, I couldn't wait to look at the pictures. I read it from faces in the crowd to the extra point, the very end, you know, every single thing. And I had two brothers and we'd all be fighting over it with my dad. You know, we wanted to get more issues. And I guess I caught a whiff of that as well when I read the intercollegiate because the intercollegiate, you're not going to go here. And if, if you read what you wrote just in the last week about Texas Tech, it's not, it's not a fan page. You're not going to go because I'm a Notre Dame fan. I want to go read about Notre Dame. You're going to go and your eyes might be opened. But one of the, the articles that just gripped me was your article on uh, sports consultants. Now, we were at North Carolina when the academic scandal hit, okay? Uh, it, it was an absolute mess. Our team got really good, really fast. We could go into this in a whole lot of different ways. Some of the people that people thought were cheating weren't the ones cheating, other guys were. <laughs> and so everybody's writing about the cheating and the academic fraud. But one of the things that got me most of all is whenever our athletic director, a man named Dick Bedore, stepped down, Carr Associates was hired to find the next athletic director. And now my job was in the balance a little bit, you know? I mean, Not our, a little bit. I mean, our team was doing good, but I didn't know if this guy was going to hire me back, you know, or even consider me for the head coach. 
And it came down to, uh, the Carr Associates came down to two candidates for the athletic director job. One of them was a real close friend of mine, and I was rooting for him. The other one was Bubba Cunningham, who ended up getting the job. And what my friend told me was, they asked, Carr Associates asked me, will you use our firm to hire your next head coach? And he said to him, I'm the athletic director. Isn't that my job to hire the head coach? And my friend said, that's when I lost the job. Mm. And nobody at the University of North Carolina with the academic scandals, with the cheating and proper benefits, all of this, I thought the one of perhaps the most insidious thing was what, what I, I'm going to call white collar crime. I don't know what else to call it. I mean, this guy made a promise to use the firm if he was granted this job. Yeah. And, and he did. When he when he, and he did, of course. He, he, the, the, the firm was used again then to hire Larry Fedora. And nobody talked about that. Mm. And when I read your article on the sports consultants, I thought to myself, there's you kind of got the nuance in it. This is going on all over the place. It's like money laundering. It's like my wife and I are watching Ozark right now. I watch Ozark yeah. and I'm like, I'm like, this is I what I just want it to be over. This is what so these sports consultants do. They're trying to just shuffle money in and out. <laughs> right. I, I really believe that. And I thought you guys really painted a clear picture of how friends hire friends, deals are cut. And believe me, we've been in it. I've interviewed for head coaching jobs. I've had agents. I've had different things. I'm also interested in hearing what you think about agents and stuff. But I'd be interested if you could reflect just a little bit on the East Carolina story as well. Because as you wrote, East Carolina, kind of not one of the Power Five programs, but East Carolina recently got rid of four athletic programs, 68 roster spots, as you said, nine coaches because they wanted to save $4.9 million. Yet they paid this guy. Can you take it? They paid this consultant an obscene amount of money. For yeah. I'm not yeah. exactly sure. Well, neither were we. Um, so, yeah, so we we had this idea that we were going to make public records requests of athletic consulting contracts across the Division One landscape in a given year to be able to kind of paint the tableau. What does the consultant matrix look like? And everybody sort of, all the schools responded slightly differently about how they determined who was a consultant. We got a lot of contracts for facility upgrades that we sort of neglected that seemed like a different story. And then we started coming through them and one trying to get a sense of who were, who just kept popping up over and over again, who was getting a lot of repeat business or business across uh, division one college sports. And then what were the outliers or what were the ones that really, I guess, captured this notion that there's this whole cottage industry of consulting that seems to be built into college sports such that it seems like failure is part of it. 
You know, I mean, we, we were very interested in the kinds of consultants who get hired when an athletic department putatively does not succeed. So when a coach has to be fired or when there has to be a Title IX investigation or when they're under NCAA investigation. And what, as we all know, this happens so frequently in college sports that it's almost by design that you can almost create this whole industry that you can reliably be a college sport consultant, let's say advising athletic departments on Title IX non-compliance and never go out of business because they're all out of compliance. Similarly, you can be an athletic department consultant who advises um, athletic departments on how to you know, raise more money or how to get into a better conference or on their five-year five strategic initiative because there's such certainty that there's so much failure. You're going to find tons of clients who will do that because on the university's perspective, the reflex is always, well, if we're not succeeding, step one, let's hire a consultant. And this is such an insider's game and there's so much back scratching that goes along um, because it doesn't matter. There's no accountability for the way the money is being spent. There's no shareholders or equivalent in college sports economics. So it's just athletic directors and university presidents basically in control of large sums of money that they're not ultimately being taxed for um, and then handing it off to their friends or at least to to companies and individuals who they might want to have a long-term relationship with, even if this is not to the benefit of the university. So in the case of East Carolina, this really kind of came home to roost. East Carolina, as you mentioned, um, has had athletic department budget problems like a lot of mid-major type programs. Um, and they're and recently announced that they were going to cut a bunch of sports in order to offset those. But before that, as we discovered, hired a guy named Dave Hart. Dave Hart was a former East Carolina athletic director who was an AD at several other places, including at Tennessee, which was his last Division I AD stop, which he was not successful in by really any measure. Um, And not long after he effectively is bought out of his contract at Tennessee, he starts a consulting firm. And, you know, one of his first clients, as far as Luke and I know, perhaps his only client, um, is East Carolina, the former, the former place he worked. And they hired him for a salary, a, a monthly salary that was probably larger than what most group of five athletic directors would make on their own. So they basically had him in for a time where he was supposed to fulfill the role of an athletic director while the athletic director that they had was let go of okay, I guess that makes a little bit of sense. The role needs to be filled. He's basically running the department. But then they hire a new athletic director. In fact, he hires a new athletic director. One of his jobs as a consultant was to lead the search. And after the new AD is installed, they continue then, I think within about a week, they re-up his contract or extend Dave Hart's contract for an entire other year at the same pay. So they basically have two athletic directors at the same time for 12 months. And Dave Hart, at the end of this, pockets over $700,000 for what I think is slightly less than two years' worth of work as a consultant. You know, so this just seemed problematic. 
on every on every score. There seemed to be a conflict of interest. The guy who he ultimately installed as the AD at um, East Carolina was his former associate AD at Tennessee. It was the ultimate sort of back scratching. Um, and moreover, it was like, well, this just seems like a colossal waste of money. If that was really what East Carolina was concerned about, why would you be throwing tens of thousands of dollars every month at an outside you know, third-party consultant. Um, and as we discovered in questioning them about this, I don't think they had a particularly good answer because I don't think there's supposed to be a good answer. I think the reason why he got hired was because this is how <laughs> college athletics consulting often works. He knew he had a connection to the school. Um, he at least presented as if by hiring them, they were making some progressive move into improving their athletic department. And because no one's paying attention for the most part, no one at the university, no one in the local media, even though it had been reported in the local paper um, that he had been hired. And there were several stories. Nobody wrote the story of well, why are they hiring him and what is he making and what is he actually doing? Um, because again, this is sort of just run of the mill, the way college sports operates that you can just get put to sleep by the next time you see something that, I think in my mind amounts to a scandal, a financial scandal. And, and Daniel, if I can jump in here, uh, remember these contracts had all come in before COVID, right? Um, and we were looking at them and starting to pour over them actually with students at the University of Florida um, at the beginning of January or so, January, February. And what was pretty incredible, uh, you know, East Carolina stood out. We were going to write about it, but then they just put the whole situation in such stark relief when they had to make these budget cuts because ostensibly of COVID, right? But then you look back at what they've just done for the past two, three years, um, spending all this money on consultants and on this particular, uh, in this particular case of Dave Hart, and it just looked completely unconscionable. And yet again, it was not the kind of, you know, this is the sort of scandal that doesn't really register as a scandal for the most part. I mean, this is not what people think okay. about when they think about college sports scandals, but this is, this is how the business works, you know, at most places, most of the time. And these are the kinds of stories that, again, just get, off, get too often overlooked. I should say, the reason why I even got interested in college sports consultants and the way that they they drive, you know, university athletic department budgetary decisions is, I'll go back to New Mexico. The, the former athletic director at New Mexico is currently under criminal prosecution for a, for a series of scandals that basically emanated from a consultant or an outside firm. There is a company called Anthony Travel, which does the travel booking for really most every college yeah, athletic we department. We know, know them. You know Anthony. <laughs> we, yeah. so, so one of the first schools that they did outside of the Midwest and the, and the Big Ten was New Mexico. New Mexico signed on with them really early in the game. Um, and because the athletic director had a connection to Anthony Travel and you know, so fast forward, or, you know, the move on a decade and they're at the heart of the scandal involving this golf trip, this booster golf trip that the athletic director and several other functionaries at, at New Mexico take 
um, that turns into this whole scandal of whether or not, you know, public monies were being used for private gain. Um, and the athletic director ultimately gets fired over this. Then he gets charged by state prosecutors. And this all comes because of this relationship between New Mexico and Anthony Travel and this, you know, this question of who are you trying to please if you're an athletic administrator? Are you trying to, what, what relationships do you care most about? Do you care most about your university, the school that's actually paying you a salary? Or are you trying to get in good and, and kind of build connections with Learfield or Anthony Travel or, you know, any number of the search firms that you were, you were referencing before or a guy like Dave Hart? I mean, who do you really care about if you're in charge of the athletic department budget? Well, Daniel, it's all about the kids. <laughs> well, well, it's it's interesting. Your process is really interesting to me as well, and your investigative reporters, in that you cast a wide net. Hey, everybody, send us your consultant information. Recently, you had a, a, an article this week uh, uh, about Texas Tech and a women's basketball coach at Texas Tech, which we won't go deep into, but you cast a net for the whole country, send us your exit interviews. As soon as I read that, I was like, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Who, you know, and so your, your, your method of casting this large net and then kind of, am I right, you kind of see where the story is. You don't go out necessarily. I, I actually don't read what you did thinking you're out to get East Carolina or you're out to get Texas Tech. No. They, they got themselves, man. Right, and right. how prevalent, you, when you cast that net in, in the consultant business, I don't think people realize, like you said, this is East Carolina. That's not right. even a power five Think team. About what right. the Let's go to Florida. Let's, where, where, where Bill Carr went to school. Let's go to Georgia. Let's go to North Carolina. Let's go to the big schools. Alabama. Alabama. You know, this is, am I right? Did you guys find this is a, you hauled in a lot of fish. Oh, yeah. Well, and the, one of the things was the reason why East Carolina was a perfect example was because they're not so big of an athletic department that they, that the money that they spend seems to matter more than a Florida or an LSU where you could find $700,000 in the, you know, cushions of the athletic department couch in the lounge. And um, with them shaving their athletic <laughs> program down as well. That's right. That's right. But absolutely. I mean, again, especially in the bigger schools where money doesn't matter usually perhaps this one year being an exception. Um, yeah, you'll, you'll just find all kinds of, of wasteful spending. And whether or not that's public money's being spent or donor money's being spent. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, again, because at the end of the day, the objective is to spend money. You don't get rewarded in athletics if you save. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, there, there's an athletic director at, at a D1 school um, who is uh, a source of mine who regularly calls me to complain about all of the budget cuts that he makes and tough moves that he does being totally unappreciated by his profession. You know, at the end of the day, what you want, if you, if you have enough, and you can, you can do this by just going on to pick your 
you know, 10 ADs and look at their online bios on their, on their school's websites. And what are they boasting about? They're boasting about money that they spent in some way, shape or form. Buildings. That's right. We, I, over, over the course of, you know, X number of years at this school, I oversaw $300 million of infrastructure improvement. These are the kinds of brags. I mean, yeah, you're, you're there just to eat. And, and this is rewarded professionally and it's rewarded in terms of how fans appreciate it. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's rare to see another aspect of, of government where society seems to have such an appreciation for spending money. I mean, what, 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 other, what other component, when we're talking about public universities, what other kind of public entity would, would openly boast about all the new kinds of money that they were able to figure out how to spend? Um, but at the end of the day, that's, that's the job. circle back to Florida, uh, they were actually a great example. They're, they had so many contracts. Um, and we, I think pre-COVID, we were probably going to feature those and highlight those more than we ended up doing. Um, but yeah, it was couch cushion money to them. It was, we, we actually had this conversation. Okay, it's like Michael Jordan and, and Charles Barkley gambling on the golf course. It's like they could be losing hundreds of thousands of dollars to each other, but they got it. So, and then what was really fascinating was we called up Florida and they got back to us and said, yep, we're cutting all of our consulting contracts for this year, which was, so it really highlights really how unnecessary all of the spending is. One thing before we leave, like mm -hmm. why, like why it's so attractive for these um, athletic departments to spend and how different that is than other kind of public institutions. I think part of it is the, you know, this kind of deeply embedded capitalist, you know, impulse that we have that when we can spend money like that, that means we're good. We're really successful. We matter. And I think that's part of what we experienced over and over again in athletic departments is just crazy, crazy waste on terms of recruiting, all the stuff that they spend so much money on. And that that is a function of, we really, we're really important. You know, we, we spend a lot of money here because we're important. The interesting thing is, it's not just that though. And I think it's because of the way race intersects with this and because of the way athletic departments will cry poor when you say we should pay the players right. in this billion dollar business, players should be right. compensated for the way they generate income. Oh no, we can't afford that. Oh. What? We'll be broke if we do that. And it's like, it's an interesting dissonance that exists. And so, you know, there's something else going on. And I like John's term, white collar crime. It's not just white collar crime, but white supremacy crime, really. Like this keeps the wealth flowing toward white people. I mean, it really does. It, the, all, I wonder what the racial makeup of these consulting agencies are. I bet they're mostly hmm. white. You're, you're absolutely, at least the people at the top of them are mostly, yeah. are mostly white. And I think that's, I mean, there's a story to be done about how that plays out in just the uh, hiring search firm component of this, because, yeah. you know, yeah, I mean, you, you hire the people often that are exactly like you in makeup. And if right. the people who are running these search firms are all, 
middle-aged and older white guys, then, you know, this is, this probably has a major impact, especially given this, it is rare now. I mean, you see it from time to time, but it is rare now to see a major hire at any school that's done by, that's done without the aid of a consultant. It's just given them tremendous power over this whole economy um, and again, just riving with conflicts of interest. I mean, you hire a consultant oh, to hire somebody. You, you're an athletic director. You, you bring in a, a consultant to do your search for your head men's basketball coach. And then, you know, and sur- surely in the back of your mind, you're thinking, well, when I find my next job, now I'm on this person's Rolodex and, and they like me because I just gave them $70,000 worth of business when I had to do my, my search. Let me ask you another thing. I've got so many questions, and this is so interesting. But uh, there's another element to it that I think is really important, and we might have seen it even in Oregon when they hired Willie Taggart. There's a level of insulation for a coach that – or an athletic director who makes a crummy hire and can say, hey, wasn't me, and – and the other groups out of town, you know? And so did you find in your thing, there's a bit of, yeah, insulation's probably a good word for it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, in the, in the best, in the best case scenario, that's what you're at least getting. Um, I mean, the other claim, at least when it comes to uh, search firms is that you're giving protection to candidates who might not want to openly advertise that they're interested in a job, but this is such nonsense. And anybody who's following college sports even casually knows that everybody's name is out all the time. There's literally no expectations for team loyalty or program loyalty. In fact, you know, if you're anything other than at the top of the pecking order of college, let's just say football, your expectation is, you know, if you if your program does well, you are going to lose that coach. I mean, you know that's that's the way this is. So the that is often a a line that's given to justify the expenses. But yeah, mostly in my mind, it's one of two things. It's it's just abdicating responsibility in the case the hiring goes bad, or two, it's getting in good with somebody, a consultant who might benefit you later on in your own in your own career. Um, and again, because you have no real obligation or no personal responsibility to the money that's being spent. And there's really no overseer. I mean, you know, you have this big budget. Um, No one's really holding you to it on a line by line basis and it's not your money. So why don't you spend it? And this is just another way of, of spending it going along with the entire arms race of college sports. But this is at least way a way that can personally benefit you as a athletic administrator or a university administrator. This can pay personal dividends to you down the road um, in those two ways at least. But I'm interested if agents have ever come up in uh, the net that you cast as well. And about, what was it, 2000, when we were with the Chicago Bears, we had gotten good, and our head coach was a man named Dick Geron. And he said, for this next contract, you, you need to hire an agent, John. I was only 30. And, uh, and 
I said, well, who's your agent? Can I just hire your agent? He said, no, you can't. His agent was Don Yee. He Hmm. said, you can't hire my agent because that would be a conflict of interest. He said, you need to understand, I want you working here, so you have to hire a different agent. And so I called some other people and some agents came after us. We ended up hiring another agent. I've seen in college sports head coaches who, a, a very close person to me, the head coach advised his coordinator to get agent, get an agent. If you want to get a head coaching job, you get an agent. But this head coach made him get the same agent that the head coach had. And so this happens regularly in college where the head coach has an agent and one, maybe both coordinators have the same agent. And now this young man, he, middle-aged guy, I mean, was at the top of every statistical category. I couldn't figure out why he's not getting interviews, interviews, interviews. And when he told me who his agent was, I said, well, isn't that your head coach's agent? He said, yeah. I said, that's effed up. I said, this is a conflict of assignment. He doesn't want to lose you. You're not getting any interviews and some clowns are getting some people that I think are really unqualified are getting some jobs. Have you, in the consulting business, have you run into agents at all? And I just think that's as unscrupulous of an angle in especially collegiate sports, but also in the NFL as any. Hmm. That's interesting. I, they didn't. They didn't turn up in any of like, in any of the public record searches that we've done. It occurs to me now that if things change in the world of college sports to basically permit um, athletes to hire agents while they're still collegiate athletes, uh, and if this goes from below the surface to something that's just now an accepted norm that will be something interesting to look at. I mean, that, yes, obviously that, that presents a whole bunch of new characters, at least that will be publicly revealed as having a kind of stake in this world and maybe multiple clients on, on the same team. I mean, could coaches push players or encourage players to sign with certain firms? I mean, the, the dynamic... So I don't think I have not encountered Luke. You'll have to you'll have to say whether or not this has crossed your uh, your radar. I don't think I've encountered yet anything specific related to agents, other than the times where I've when I'm inve- have investigated a coach. You know, I'll, I'll run into or I'll I'll take note of who is representing them. But yeah, I mean, now that I'm sort of thinking about it, it makes sense that this is a, a whole other wild west of of corruption and, and conflict. And again, you know, to take your example of how a coach can keep his assistants, you know, at heel, you, you could just extend that out further, you know, with, uh, with players as well. Right. Um, but yeah, no, I don't think I specifically have seen anything or chased anything about the way that agents can, can manipulate, uh, can, man- can manipulate things or how people can use agents to manipulate things in college sports. Yeah. 
we might uh, that you might have sparked a, a public records request or idea for us. <laughs> so maybe we'll be back in six months. Well, there's se there's several ancillary industries like that. I think another one would be financial advisors that um, they hook on with somebody, a head coach or a general manager, and then that person, you know, encourages the people that they hire or people that are interested to use those people's services. That's happened to us many times where we're encouraged in a certain direction. And I think the the interesting thing is when you're looking at it in terms of a justice issue, players are prevented from having those kind of advocates, right? Mm -hmm. And for them, having an agent has been pretty much criminalized. You know, like there are federal laws against it and state laws against it. And But with coaches, it's just kind of a known part of like, this is the way we move the chess pieces around the board. This is the way power gets hoarded. This is the way that um, people are manipulated and controlled. Um, and and it's, that kind of stuff still happens with players, but they don't get an advocate in the process or even the appearance of having an advocate in the process. So if you look into agents, look into financial advisors. Uh, well, no, I mean, but it, it's interesting. So hey, I, after the show, I'll tell you about some agent <laughs> stories. <laughs> it, there's going to be a whole bunch of different kinds of new players in this game that are going to spring out of the idea of greater athlete rights. You know, there's, there's now NIL consultants. I've already started making public records requests for contracts of consultants that athletic departments hire to advise their athletes on their own branding and their own image and likeness. Um, so yeah, this is, these are just going to be new offshoots and new kinds of industries or new you know, branches to the college sports consulting industry um, that are, that are, you know, going to, going to require a lot of scrutiny and they're going to come under the, at least guys that this is all good, that this is part of the reform. Um, there's been this one, I won't mention his name because I don't, haven't really done sufficient reporting on him, but there's this one name that keeps banding, getting bandied about by athletic departments of a, branding consultant that they're hiring or bringing on. I think they're claiming that they're bringing him on for free, um, not hiring him to advise their athletes on, N on their new NIL possibilities. And it just, I've been sort of stalking this journalistically and making requests because there's just something about this person and his omnipresence that seems like this guy's about to make a bunch of money yeah. Um, let's figure out exactly what the relationships are or why schools are bringing on just this one guy, at least why he just keeps crossing my radar. Um, and I think, you know, there's going to be, there's going to be a lot of those, those kinds of stories. And, um, but you know, the question is, is, well, you know, will people pay attention? Um, right. are, are people paying attention because the more and more different kinds of pieces there are on the chessboard, you know, the easier it is for many people to just slip by um, and do their do their work and for universities to engage with, you know, outside people or inside people in a in a unscrupulous manner. And um, and yeah, I think we're going to just have an explosion of new of a whole new cast of characters here that it's going to be initially a little bit difficult to figure out what exactly they do how they do it, and maybe how they benefit from it. Um, but surely they do. 
Sometimes the benefits, um, Daniel, are just proximity. Um, we have learned that, that proximity to the sports world, proximity to the sports industry gives people a lot of social capital. Even if they're not getting a check written or money under the table, there is a certain degree of influence and access that they get that translates into a high value in our culture. And you see the other place you'll see that if you ever get interested in the religious aspect of this is our chaplains on, on state university teams who nobody's paying them. Yes, they are. <laughs> They're paying them. And these are people that are, you know, right in the thick of it on team planes and everything. And they are in state universities. This could Pushing be Christianity down people's throats. Yeah. You know? No, I, 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 that actually is a subject of, of interest to me. And to the point you were making before, you know, again, I'll go back to my Rosetta Stone here in New Mexico. It was incredible to me to notice how much cachet it had um, among politicians and business people in the state of New Mexico granting that there's not a whole lot of other things to gather around. There's not professional sports of any, of any significance, but New Mexico athletics is mid major dumb. It is nothing. Right. You know, it, it is, it is ultimately meaningless. And yet how important it was for people to cozy up to a mid major and often mediocre program Mm -hmm. was yeah it totally testifies to what you were going to say you know just the nate wherever you are wh whatever the college athletics program is somebody will find some sort of social capital out of that if not financial capital out of that and it becomes you know it becomes a game to figure out how closely you can get aligned to it Great, really, really talking to you all, and keep keep up the good work. We really affirm the the lens that you bring and the scrutiny that you bring because this is all about. It's really about our, you know, the community, so to speak, the larger community with the capital C and and accountability and and really how sports really does matter in our culture. So how how do we hold something we love to account and. That's really important to, to John and me, and that's part of why we have this show. So um, you all have been perfect guests to have, and we're so grateful. You've been listening to Going Deep, Sports in the 21st Century, from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio, NPR for Western North Carolina. Tell us what you think of the show by emailing us at goingdeep at bpr.org. Make sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Shoops Going Deep. <laughs>